0: ask the Lord to bless our time. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we come before you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that this morning, as we consider your word and your law, that you would help us to echo the words of the psalmist, oh, how I love your law, that we would as we seek to follow in the pattern of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, see that His steps were those steps taken in direction and in obedience to the law. Help us, Lord, to seek to be those who long to be like our Savior. What would Jesus do? He would follow the law. Help us, Lord, to follow our Lord Give us ears to hear, hearts that believe, and minds that understand, and give us feet to obey. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Let it be done. I decrease, Lord, that you may increase, be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, over the past two weeks, we have considered two extremes in regards to the law of God. Legalism on the one hand, and antinomianism on the other. And I hope that in these past few weeks that we have been studying these two extremes, that you have been able to walk away with a, an understanding of what legalism is, an understanding of what antinomianism is. Legalism being that false belief that there is some merit that one might offer in order to earn the grace of God and therefore be justified by God legalism is is the belief that there is something that you might do say think or believe that might earn the grace of God i said to our morning class this morning Is the believer who seeks to obey God's law and walk in his commands, is he legalistic? No. He is a Christian. That is what we must do. The other side, antinomianism. It is that false belief that the grace of God gives the child of God the freedom to disregard the law of God. And who sees their obligation to the law of God as null and void. Meaning it does no longer exist in their lives. They are the ones who misunderstand the apostle who says where there is grace there is no law. We have learned that both of these extremes, both of these false teachings have come from a common misunderstanding of the grace of God. On the one hand, the legalist sees grace as something that must be earned. And on the other, the antinomian sees grace as a license to sin. Brothers and sisters, let us beware of the temptation, the temptation of the flesh to wander into these two ditches of heresy. But I think the question that might still remain in the minds of some is this. What exactly is the relationship now between the law of God and the believer? I wonder how you might answer that question. What is the relationship now between the law of God and the believer? A common question is this. If our salvation is by grace, and it is. And our sanctification takes place through union with Christ in the power of the Spirit. And it does. What role, if any, is left for God's law in the believer's life? They might ask, doesn't the gospel abolish the law? Isn't it true that the law no longer functions? It functions in any sense in the Christian's life. And even if the issue has already been answered in your own minds, I'm sure that we have all at one point or another grappled with this most important question. And so this morning, with God's help, we shall seek to discuss one of the most important, if not the most important questions in the life of the believer, not the not the unbeliever, The most important question in the life of the unbeliever is, how might I be saved? The most important question in the life of the believer is this. What is the relationship now between the law of God and the believer? You'll notice that the question is not, what is the relationship between the law of the land and the believer? There are many passages that inform believers about how we are to live in the land as the powers that be dictate the laws of the land. That's not the question. Laws differ from one state to another. What you can do in Alaska, you might not be able to do in California. What you can do in the United States, you might not be able to do in China and vice versa. So the question is not what is the believer's relationship to the law of the land but rather, what is the believer's relationship, the child of God's relationship to the law of God? The question is, is there some sense in which in every place, at every time, and for every child of God, his relationship to that law that God has revealed in what we call the Ten Commandments remains constantly the same? Is there some relationship between God's law and God's children that is true in every age and in every place and for every single believer? That's the question. I want to suggest to you that this is indeed a vital issue for Christians to be thinking clearly about. And in order for us to think clearly about it, we must be thinking biblically about these things. Why? Because we, I think, would all recognize that we are living in a day in which the place of the commands of God are crumbling before our very eyes in this country and throughout the entire world. I can remember a time in my life when the Ten Commandments was posted in my classroom. And now the Ten Commandments that have not only been taken out of our classroom, but out of our courts and even out of our homes and out of our discussions of life altogether. No matter what state, no matter what country, the great old standard of God's law is increasingly being excluded by sinful men and also by confused so called believers. More and more, the idea of right and wrong is being challenged and being thrown away altogether. More and more the standard of righteousness is being threatened by the idea that what is right for you is is not right for me and what is wrong for you is not wrong for me. And there is increasingly now more and more no absolute moral standard of truth. We, the people of God now, we even live in fear of what the response will be from others of our upholding the moral standard of God. We are afraid to talk about God's law and things that are not in step with the culture of today. And as I've already stated, there seems to be no place where men are so more confused about the law of God and its perpetual relevance for all people at all times and among those who profess Christ as their Lord and Savior. Ask the common Christian, are you to be obligated to the law of God? They will say, no, I'm free from the law. And they will say so without hesitation. Some of the most perplexing conversations that I've had in regards to the law of God have been with believers. Who claim the name of Christ and yet reject the notion that there is any law that is still binding on their lives. We must even confess that even when the word law, the word law, is spoken in church today, many cannot help but silently cringe at the sound of the word law. The spirit of the age has undoubtedly bled into the life of the church. Now, to place any emphasis on the law of God as being necessary for the believer's life is regarded as being legalistic and not biblical. A new narrative has arisen, and you've heard it before, you and I may have thought it before, a new narrative has arisen to interpret the old evangelicalism, which is characterized, even caricaturized as this, a religion of do's and don'ts that Christianity is not about do's and don'ts. You've heard that before. You maybe have said that before, that Christianity is about a, a relationship and not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. Now more and more we are hearing that God loves us just the way that we are and that any divine demand is seen as a return to the old bad ways and even the old bad days. Back to legalism, if you will, of do's and don'ts. That Christianity is about love, not the law. That it's about a relationship, not a ritual. I've said these things. This, my dear friends, my brothers and sisters, is a distorted view. Why? For one, the New Testament, it is punctuated and filled with commands telling us what we are to do and what we are not to do. And the truth is, since the fall of Adam, God has only loved one person just the way he is. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have lost sight of the fact that it is precisely because of the way that we are That Christ has gone to the cross. If God loved us just the way that we are. Then there would have been no need for Christ to come and save us. No. God loves us in spite of who we are. Not just the way we are. In spite of of who we are. In spite of the way that we are. It is those who emphasize the grace of God. And who believe that we simply need to be ourselves. Even if that means be our worst selves. And give no regard to the fact that the God who receives us just as we are in Christ Jesus. Receives us just as we are so that we might be made just as he is. So then, let us turn to that place That place of authority that we all agree is true and reliable. If there is anyone who can explain to us the law of God in the believer's life, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we've already read the passage here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. And it's interesting that, that Christ begins his address on the Sermon of the Mount by speaking about the law. It was as though, and I know he did, as though he knew and that he knows that if there is one thing in the believer's life that would always be a question, it would be, what is the position and place of the law of God in the believer's life? That this would always be a question. And so it is addressed here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 through 20. As we've already read, it's important for us to note that when Jesus is speaking about the law of God, He is speaking about the Decalogue, that is the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. He said in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He says, The law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is the and was the designation for the Old Testament. The Old Testament is summed up as this, the law and the prophets, the law. It was those days when God met with the patriarchs and with his people on Mount Sinai and commanded them how they might live as the people of God and the prophets. It is those books of history in which the law of God is taken as the norm and standard And the men and women of God uh, and the men and women of Israel are called to obey God in light of his commands. Jesus is saying that he has come to fulfill the scriptures. But as you read on, you discover that Christ means something more particular about this expression, the word law. He says in verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter. Or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Christ came not to destroy the law and not to destroy the prophets. But he focuses our attention on the law by saying not one letter and not one stroke of the pen shall pass until all is accomplished. What law is he speaking of again? Again. What letter is he speaking of? What stroke of pen? Is he speaking of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible? And he gives us more insight into what he is talking about and what he is saying. He says, whoever annuls one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. What are these? They are in reference to that which he has said he has not come to destroy. The question is, what law? It's... That law that he has not come to destroy. It is that law that he has not come to abolish. These commands. He is not speaking about the opening chapters of the Bible. But again, the holy commandments of God. The Ten Commandments. They are that law that every creature created in the image of God has been created with a knowledge of. It is the Decalogue. The ten words that have been etched in stone and given as God's revelation of God's moral character and his holy standard for men to abide by. How do we know this? How do we know that Christ is upholding the Ten Commandments? Because Christ will proceed from chapter 5 verse 21 to chapter 7 verse 27 to give a true exposition of the moral law of God. And correct the false interpretations, the false expositions, and false applications of the law of God from the scribes, rabbis, and Pharisees of that day. And how will he do this? He will begin each of his corrections by saying, you have heard that it was said. And every time he says what has been said... It is nowhere said in all of the Old Testament. Does that make sense? He is correcting the teachings of the the Pharisees. He is correcting the teachings of the Sadducees, of the scribes, of the rabbis. And he's saying, you've heard from them. But what you have heard from them has never been taught in God's law. Their words have been made up by men. They are made up by the traditions of men. He was quoting the traditional interpretations of the rabbis and scribes of his time that have been built up year after year. And his rebuttal to that is this, But I say to you, you have heard it said, but I say to you, what gall Christ had, what nerve, that he says in the presence of those who are the teachers of Israel, you've heard it said by them, But I am coming and I am saying to you now. And he says with each interpretation before. Verily, verily I say unto you. Or truly, truly I say unto you. Or amen and amen I say unto you. Because he is the true amen. Christ is saying here is the true interpretation of those laws. Amen and amen. This is the true understanding of the law of God. From the true amen of God. Therefore, With that said, I have just four points for you this morning concerning the law of God and Christ explaining to us its place in our lives. Number one, Jesus proclaims for all time the perpetual validity of the law of God. If you want to shorten that, it is the perpetual validity of the law of God. The perpetual, continual validity of the law of God. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish, that is, to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. What did Jesus say? Why did Jesus say this? Think about the issue that he is opening, openly addressing to the people. He's saying this. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. Why would he say this? How many of you have ever read through the scriptures and said, I wonder why he even said that. The great issue surrounding Jesus was how he related to the prophets of old and also how he related to the law of God. Why? Because from the people's perspective, Jesus was a revolutionary and an abolitionist. You know what an abolitionist is? It is one who destroys law, who wants to remove law. In the eyes of those who were meeting and seeing and hearing Jesus, they viewed him as one who wanted to destroy the law. Why? Well, what did he do? He was put to the test. When he healed a man on what day? On the Sabbath. And this was seen by the false teachers as a work not to be done on the Sabbath. In their view, he was violating the law of God. He did not violate the law of God. But in their view, he was violating the law of God. Why? Because he was violating all of their extra commands. He seemed to be abolishing the law of God by violating their commands, which they made the law of God. Does that make sense? Again, when the disciples went through the fields on the Sabbath, they were picking the heads of grain. And they were being watched by the religious leaders who grilled Jesus about what he was teaching his disciples that they would treat the Sabbath in such a profane way. He was breaking their laws. And most of all, they gnashed their teeth when Christ welcomed sinners to his table. When he accepted the invitation of sinners, those who were seen as the refuse of society, Christ openly associated himself with them. They saw Jesus as the great enemy of their pharisaic tradition and an enemy to the law of God. And they determined to slay him, lest his influence spread throughout the land. But Jesus says to All of his listeners, as he begins to preach this Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Again, where is the language coming from? I have not come to destroy the law. He's picking up on things that have been said about him. This man has come to destroy the law. And his statement is, I've not come to destroy the law. I've come to fulfill the law. He was being seen as... A demolition man. One who takes, who is trying to take the law apart brick by brick before their very eyes. And what was it in Jesus that they saw that was so offensive? It was joy. It was exuberance in the life that he had lived because he was living life in obedience to God's commands. They called him a wine drinker. They called him a glutton and a friend of sinners that was destroying the law of God. They believed that it was only when a man broke the law that they could know true joy, liberty, and blessedness. And they did not understand the joy that Christ had in obeying God and His law. That's seen today. When we speak about the law of God, we often think that it is robbing us of any joy, robbing us of any blessedness, but rather, It is increasing our joy. It is meant to increase our blessedness. These Pharisees, they placed on their own shoulders a yoke that they themselves could not carry. They were astonished and even confused when Christ said that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. He delighted to do the will of God. And now he is saying that the most stable thing in all of the world is the law of God. It is the only thing that remains perpetually, continually valid in all days, in all times. And he has not come to take that away. Again, what law? Not the civil law. Christ did not say he came to maintain the legal system, but to fulfill it. To show its true significance and meaning. To fulfill the significance of the ceremonies in his sacrifice. So that there would be no more room for animal sacrifices. That typify the meaning of his sacrifice. So that when he was revealed as the true Israel. As the true man of God. As the true light of the world. There would no longer be, be any need for those legal divisions. That separated the old covenant people of God from the rest of mankind. He dies on the cross as our Passover lamb to break down the division between Jew and Gentile. He fulfills the ceremonies and lays them aside, fulfilling the duties of the civic function and therefore bringing that to an end. And by walking in the light of the moral commandments, And therefore teaching us both by example and by command. That as the Savior was in the world, so we also must be in the world and obey these perpetual commands. So then the law remains. And it has not been done away with. All of the law, all of the law. Even the fourth commandment, even the fourth commandment. Even the ninth commandment, even the ninth commandment, even the fifth commandment. Even the fifth commandment. I said to our class this morning, what's the third commandment? And our class had a blank stare. And I said, maybe we should do a, a pop quiz one of these days. Take away all Bibles and all smartphones and see who can name the ten commandments. Why should we know them? Because they remain. Because they remain. Secondly, secondly, Jesus expounds the true spirituality of the law. Or Jesus teaches about the true spirit of the law. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, he says, For I say to you that unless, listen to this passage, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Jesus prefaces this statement emphatically. In other versions, he says, verily, verily, or amen, amen. He's the faithful witness to this fact. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It was though through the amen and through the verily, he's saying, if you miss this, you miss everything. The righteousness of these men, the scribes and Pharisees, was the standard among men. It was said in those days that if only two men entered heaven, one would be a scribe and the other would be a Pharisee. That's how much the men of that day, the women of that day, were in awe of the scribes and Pharisees for their righteousness. Paul speaks about his conduct as a Pharisee. And he says, as a Pharisee, blameless, or I lived an impeccable, sinless life as a Pharisee. These men sought to devote themselves to holiness. They were the holiness movement before the holiness movement. They adhered to 248 commands and 365 prohibitions. So this statement of being more righteous more righteous than the Pharisees? It must have astonished the hearers of Christ. They are looking at the standard of the Pharisees and the scribes and they are saying I need to be more righteous than they in order to enter the kingdom of heaven? It would have caused them to say where can I find such a righteousness? These Pharisees they are the ones who are Who are telling us the way of life. And now we are told that they themselves are bound for eternal separation. If we are not more righteous than they are. Where will I find such a righteousness? We might all think we know the answer. Where will I find such a righteousness? Righteousness. Is Christ speaking of that righteousness that comes by his own blood? Is he speaking of his own imputed righteousness to sinners? Is he speaking of the righteousness that he demands and also that he provides? Brothers and sisters, let me say to you that it would be blasphemy on my part to detract from that righteousness of Christ. But I submit to you that that is not the righteousness that Christ is speaking of here. So then what righteousness? We should all be on the edge of our seats. Then. So then what righteousness are you talking about? Your righteousness. Your own righteousness. All of the most reputable scholars agree. It is not Christ's righteousness that he speaks of. No, it is, it is actually your righteousness. Now, I hope that some of you may be sitting here this morning confused. You mean to tell me that, that I must, therefore, be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees in order for me to enter the kingdom of heaven. If that's the case, then what hope for us is there in this world and in the world to come? Yes, you. If this was a charismatic church, I would say turn to your neighbor and say you. But don't do so. You must be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, or you will be barred from the kingdom of heaven. It is not unless you receive my righteousness, but it is as you heard it. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the gates of heaven are closed to you. Now, how is this so, we must ask? Don't stop reading. If anybody ever wants to ask you a biblical question, say, did you read on? Because the answer lies therein. Keep reading. Go to his expositions and see what he means. It does not qualify us for the kingdom of God, but lack of it will debar us from the kingdom of God. He is saying that uh, what the writer of the Hebrews says, strive for that holiness which no man will see the Lord of which without it no man will see the Lord. He's not saying by that striving we will gain entrance. No. But without it, there can never be entrance. So then what does he mean? Christ goes on to distinguish, to show the difference between the righteousness of a Pharisee and scribe and the righteousness of a believer. He goes on to say. What made the Pharisee. In his life. Uh, he goes on to say. What the, what the Pharisee made. In his life. Of his life. In relationship to the law of God. Is contrasted and much different. Than what the believer. Must make of the law of God. In his life. And the two are completely Opposite. He is not exalting the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's exposing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Verses 21 to 48, he makes the contrast between the two. He goes on to uncover the true nature of their righteousness, which was no righteousness at all. Are you with me? For their righteousness was ceremonial and not moral.
1: Their righteousness
0: was of the traditions of men and not from the heart of God. Rather than radically being devoted to God in this heart, His was a righteousness that was more supernatural. It was more outward conduct than inward conduct of the heart. And do you see then how unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Because why? Because they are not entering the kingdom of heaven. Because their righteousness is not true righteousness. It is self-righteousness. And the believer is not self-righteous, but rather he has been made right before God. And because he has been made right before God, he lives in perfect, not perfect, he lives in striving to be obedient to the commands of God. Because his heart has been changed. The Pharisee says meritoriously, I thank you God that I am different than other men. I give, I fast, I pray. It was righteousness that he sought to make merit in the eyes of God with. Whereas the true righteousness of the kingdom of heaven is not righteousness that is gained meritoriously. But one that has gained penitently, repentantly in the heart of the believer. You see, this in every illustration that Christ uses, don't you? In the illustration of murder, Jesus says, You've heard it said, do not murder. But Jesus takes it a step further and says, But if you hate your brother, you are in danger of the hellfire. If you say to your brother, thou fool, Raka, you are in danger of the fires of hell. In adultery, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. He takes it a step further. You have heard it said, do not make an oath. But I say to you, do not make any oaths at all. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by earth. He goes to all of the single attitudes and exposition after exposition tears away the mask of hypocrisy from the Pharisees and exposes that they were not truly righteous in their hearts. That it was merely a performance before men. Brothers and sisters, we cannot perform before men and think that our performance before men will gain us right standing with God. We must, in our heart of hearts, be devoted to God. Oh, sometimes have we not been amazed at those whom we have seen. My wife tells me about them all the time. Those that we have seen who seem to have it all together on the outside. And it isn't before long that we find out that they have been doing so many things where no one sees in the darkness. Their performance before men was impeccable. But their heart before God was just as dirty as the sinner who never confesses Christ. It demonstrates that the righteousness that Jesus demands and creates in the life of the believer is a righteousness that goes to the very heart of his being. It is not a natural righteousness or an outward righteousness. It is a spiritual, supernatural righteousness that is only gained, yes, by placing our faith in the only righteous one, Jesus Christ. It is the law of God set before the believer who, with the law of God written on his heart, responds to the law of God, just like this echo is responding to an echo. When we hear the law of God, we respond to the law of God. Because the law of God has now been written on our hearts and we can both understand it and love it like we never did before. Without that passion and desire to obey the law of God and to have it uh, opened to the law's spiritual significance, to search out our sin, to smite our consciences, to show us the way of God and to make us long to be living embodiments of the character of God revealed in this Ten Commandments. Without that righteousness, Christ says that you and I will no wise enter the kingdom of God. The law of God comes to us. It smites our consciences because it is a reflection of the character of God. The character of God from whom we used to hide from. The law of God from whom we used to hide from now becomes our friend. Because Christ has offered us freedom and grace in the gospel. And the righteousness of Christ is the message of the gospel that is bestowed upon us by his free grace. And it answers to the righteousness which he sends us to in the law to spiritually understand and obey. Samuel Bolton says it much better than I. It says he says this the law sends us of the gospel. That we might be justified and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. And the gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. This is why in Romans chapter 7 Paul cries out the law is spiritual but I am unspiritual. It searches out man And it is used by the Spirit of God to bring us to the presence of God. It is equipped to guide those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. This is what Jesus is saying. What is the way of life for those who mourn for their sins? What is the way of life for those who are meek in spirit? What is the way of life for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake? Christ says that it is the law, and that the law is spiritual, and that is it is perpetual. it leads me it gives me eyes to see the way of the Spirit of God in my life and beloved, isn't that exactly what's promised in the gospel? isn't that exactly what is promised in the New covenant, or when that great day came when the promise of the new covenant uh, Has come in Jeremiah chapter 31, not like the covenant of old made with their fathers, but new in measures of the knowledge of God and the liberty of the children of God. And new in the adoption of the Spirit where we cry, Abba, Father. And what's at the heart? What's at the heart of the new covenant promise? That we would be his people and that he would be our God and that he would write his law upon our hearts, the hearts of his people. And that we would no longer reject it, but that we would embrace it with all of our hearts. The law is spiritual because Jesus said the law is spiritual. It gives him passion to serve God, to see God as he is and how we might serve him. He has not come just to clarify the false teachings of that day. But to proclaim the joy and the grace of those who have the law of God written on their hearts according to the promise of the new covenant. When that which is written on the heart is expounded to believers, it is shown to be spiritual. The law is spiritual. Number three, these will be shorter Christ guarantees the ultimate fulfillment of the law. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill, to fulfill the law. We have hinted at this, but it would be a mistake today and for all times to think that Jesus abolishes the law of God. And it would be equally a mistake to think and to believe that That Christ is bringing the thunder and lightning of Mount Sinai with the law of God to the children of God. It would be a gross distortion to think that in expounding the spirituality of the law, Christ is also threatening believers as though he was speaking to unbelievers or as though he was our policeman. Let us not make that mistake. And it is a common one, isn't it? When we say the law is perpetual, the law is spiritual, to say, well then, if I don't do this, then now I'm going to hell. Brothers and sisters, Christ is not standing over us as a police officer. And He is also, as I said, not bringing the fear and thunder and lightning to the people of God that those Who were in the community of Israel felt when they they came to the mouth of the mountain of Mount Sinai. On the contrary. Christ promises his disciples and all believers. Before he expounds and explains the law. He is giving them a guarantee of the new covenant fulfilled. Not presenting the new covenant to you and saying you must fulfill it. But he is saying it is and will be fulfilled. Will be and is fulfilled. He is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. And the word of the Amen is that the law of God is guaranteed to be fulfilled, lest you fear. Lest you fear for one second. Christ, our Savior, has guaranteed that it will be fulfilled. He promises that until heaven and earth pass away, not one stroke shall be removed. For he came not to destroy, but to fulfill. He comes with the law of God in his hands, not to destroy it, but to fulfill it for all those who would trust in him and to save us who trust in him in that process. Much of the time in the New Testament is taken up by expounding how Christ has fulfilled the law. And how has he done so? Briefly in four ways. The law is fulfilled in his doctrine. For he takes the law of God and he gives its true meaning, its true exposition. He has made God known. His eternal character. His true character. Christ has made him known. Second Corinthians chapter 3 says, Essentially no man has ever really understood the law of God until the Son of God has made, it known, made Him known to us and fulfilled that law. Christ has made God and His law known to us. He has shown us the true significance of the law. We, we only need to read the Bible, read the law of God, and it won't be long before you misunderstand the law of God. It won't be long before we confess it. We could never really plummet the depths of the true significance of the law of God until... Until the Lord Jesus Christ explained it to us. And not only explained it to us, but fulfilled his law in his own doctrine. Not only this, but in his doctrine, he taught that he fulfilled the law in his own blessed life. He is the man of Psalm 1, he is the man of Psalm 40. Who delighted in the law of God. Whose law was written on his heart. He fulfilled the law by his own doctrine. He fulfilled the law by his deeds. He has come into the world and he is able to say to men and to women. Which of you by the standard of the law is able to accuse me of any sin or any law breaking. And what was the response when he stands and says who can accuse me of sin. They were all silenced. And you may remember at the end of the book of Luke. Whereon, in occasion after occasion, Christ is condemned by Jewish law on the one hand and Roman law on the other hand. And then finally, when they see the blessed one on the cross, both Jew and Gentile are, are coerced. They are coerced. They are constrained to confess. This man is innocent of any wrongdoing. He has done nothing wrong. From the mouth of sinners... From the mouths of unbelievers looking to the blessed one and saying this man has done nothing wrong. Because he has fulfilled the law in his deeds. He is the great prophet of the church who fulfills the law in his doctrine. He fulfills the law in his deeds. He fulfills the law in his death. He is the only one. He is the only one. Obedient to the commands of God. He is the only one who was able to set us free from the condemnation of the law, and because he has been obedient, he was free from the condemnation of the law. Therefore, he and he alone could bear upon his body and bear upon his soul the condemnation and the curse of the law that was due to us sinners whom he came to represent. As our Savior and our mediator, he came to take the law upon, our, upon his shoulders. And if there were any doubt, brothers and sisters, any doubt whatsoever that Christ came into the world to fulfill the law of God, if there was any doubt, we only need to to walk up Mount Golgotha's Hill and see the place where Christ was crucified at Calvary and see the darkness of the sky that afternoon and hear the cry from his voice, O oh God, O oh God, why have you forsaken me? And hear the response of heaven come back because you have come to fulfill my law. Not only in your teaching, not only in your living, but by the bearing of the penalty of the curse as it has been broken by lost and hellbound sinners. There he fulfilled the law. Christ became a curse for us, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. All of the justice fell fully and wholly for their fulfillment on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in His doctrine, in His deeds, in His death. And could you guess what the final one would be? How Christ fulfills the law. Doctrine, deeds, death, and disciples. You and I. And this is the point of Christ's exposition in Matthew chapter 5. As he himself is the new covenant given to the nations, that he might on the hearts of those who have been made fleshly by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit rewrite inwardly the desires to do the law of God and to give them on the day of Pentecost the Spirit of God by which we might be empowered to fulfill the law of God. Then he stands and he says to his disciples, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, remember that he has prefaced this by saying, heaven and earth will not pass away until this law has been fulfilled, not only by himself, but in those who have become his children. So it is not a menacing warning to those who are in Christ, although it is an awful warning to those who are not in Christ. It is the most precious of all gospel promises that what he has done in himself, he will begin to do in the lives of his children. Does that make sense? Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the whole purpose of His coming is that He came to do what the law could not do, weak through the flesh, to condemn sin in the flesh in order that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Who are those in whom the law is fulfilled in? You and I. Not using the law as a way of salvation, no. No. But those who walk according to the Spirit see the law as a rule of life, and saying with Christ Himself, who lives in them by His Spirit, I too delight in Thy will, O God. Oh, how I love Your law! For it has now been written on my heart in a way that I don't reject, but love and long to obey. Is that true of you, believer, today when you hear the law of God? Do you say, oh yes, Lord. Oh, how I love your law. Is your heart pricked each time the law of God is brought to bear upon your soul to which you say yes and amen? Or do you say, no, I don't need to. And do you teach others? It's no big deal either. To those you will be called least in the kingdom of God. So that which he is able to say to himself, he is able to, dis- his, to say to his disciples after him. So that they, we, discover as every child of God discovers upon our conversion that there is perfect harmony between that which is written upon tablets of stone on Mount Sinai and that which is written on the heart of every believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is in the light of this that he sees, the believer, that this is God's word to him. That it has been embodied by the Savior. He sees the word of God that has been given to him objectively. Answering to the spirit of God that has been given to him subjectively. So that what was formerly his enemy, the law, what was formerly his enemy to which he would close his eyes and run and hide lest it smite him in condemnation becomes, becomes now his light. Becomes now his friend that sticks close to him, that guides him, that each time he seeks to sin and disobey the law of God, the commands of God, his friend says to him, don't go that way. It is the way of the wicked And because he has now the Spirit of God, he can say yes and amen. He says, now lead me in the path of thy commandments, for I delight in them. What our Lord is saying is this. He comes to us by the power of the Holy Spirit to write his law on our hearts and to give us the motivation to obey him and to say how I love thy law. And Jesus says now by the power, by my power, go and do, go and do, go and obey. It's not our power that enables us. It is his power that enables us to obey his law. The law is the direction in which salvation enables us to go in and to live as joyously as Christ lived. When I was a a kid, uh, after my conversion, there was these popular bands that came out. And they were WWJD bands, and I would wear them when I boxed and when I played basketball and when I walked throughout the halls of college. And what would Jesus do? He would obey God's law. He would obey God's law. My son, to my great horror, has returned To his love for Thomas the train. The train is a track master. And it's not a wooden train. it's It's a battery operated train. This train will not work. Without batteries. If there is no battery in the train. The train will sit there. And my son will do nothing with it. It might as well. Go in the trash and be good for nothing. But trains, these trains, they require a battery. And once that battery is placed into that train, the wheels of that train spin so fast that my son is in awe. Look at the power that the battery has now given the train. Look, Dad, how fast it can go. And the first thing that my son does is he runs to the tracks to place his Thomas the train on those tracks and see how fast it goes. My son does not put the battery in the train and put it on the floor and let it go willy-nilly wherever it wants to go. Rather, he knows that in order for the train to be used to its best capacity, it must be put on the tracks. This is what has happened to us. We were as good as nothing. Until God, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, gave to us His Holy Spirit. Oh, and when we were first filled with the Holy Spirit, we felt as though we could run from Bakersfield to New York and back. But God has given us something to direct our paths. He has given us a holy track to direct how we might live in light of the power that we now have In the Holy Spirit. And that is his holy, perpetual, spiritual law. The glory of the gospel is that we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have been set upon the track of God's law. Go this way. And he gives us the power to do it. And he gives us the power to do it. You don't need to have your... Train, your, your batteries replaced every other year. You don't need to be baptized again and again and again in order to receive more power, more power, more power. You only need to, by the power of the Spirit, turn to His Word and obey Him. Lastly and finally, Jesus explains the function of the law. Whosoever shall break one of the least of these commandments and teach others to obey them also will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that Jesus is not speaking about our isolated moral failures. He's not speaking about the times that we fail periodically. He's speaking about our attitude toward the law. Whoever has this attitude that they will reject the law and teach others to reject the law will be seen least as least in the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, do you reverence God? Do you reverence His law? My son, and I don't mean to use him once again for this example, but he, it has been ingrained in him all of the commands. We are now just passing the fourth commandment in our catechism. We are in question 66. And one of the laws that he catches everybody on, even those who are on television, is the third commandment using the name of God in vain. And how often do we say, Oh God, oh my God, and think nothing of it? We use the name of God so flippantly. So irreverently, we throw His name with curse. And this is just one aspect of violating taking God's name in vain. Brothers and sisters, how do you use His name? For if you are not addressing Him in prayer or exalting Him in speech, be very careful about how you use His name. He is the God of all the universe. The old scribes, when they would write Yahweh in their writings, they would take that pen and no longer use it, but replace it with a brand new one. That is how reverently they took God's name. It's a one of God's law. Do you reverence God's law? He says the ultimate test of how we will be judged as standing or falling in relationship to the kingdom of God. Not in a way into the kingdom of God. But Jesus pronounces an anathema against those who would break the commandments of God, treat them as irrelevant or flippant and teach others to do so as well. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you, bring the law of God to your children's conscience. If there is ever a time when my son will say something that is untrue, for my wife brings to him the law of God's son, that is a lie and that is against God's law. Is this legalistic? No. Why? Because the point that we just said is that the one who has been saved loves this. At this point, our mouth should be saying, Amen, preacher! Say more, preacher! Yes, preacher! But I think it is because we are all guilty in so many ways. But remember, Christ is not coming to us with thunder and lightning. He is coming to us as the gracious Master who wants to correct our hearts. And how will He not be corrected unless it is brought to bear upon our conscience? These are not an entry as a means of entry into the kingdom of God, but they are the evidence of the entry of the kingdom of God. And our attitude toward the law of God that has been written on our hearts should be one of joy and yes, teach me, O oh Lord. And where we fail, God, give me more faith. We must not blaspheme the Holy Spirit by denying what has been written on our hearts, it must be our delight. Uh, In our previous sermon, we must love the law of God. Why? Because we are commanded to do so. And because it is so good. And we must teach others to delight in it. God enables me, us, to fulfill His law so that at the end of the day, it is the index of our attitude toward Him and our attitude toward His law That helps us to see where we stand in relationship to our love for Him and our desire for Him. When in Christ the veil that blinded us once before from the true significance of the law is removed, what did we see? We gazed at Christ and said, How lovely are you, Christ. When that veil was removed, we saw Christ and we said, How beautiful are you, Christ? And how lovely are your commands? And we are being changed, therefore, from one degree to another, or as the Apostle says, from glory to glory, that Christ might be formed in us. Don't you want that? Brothers and sisters, may the cry of all of our hearts be, as we are filled with the Spirit, Oh, how I love your law. Fulfill thy blessed law in me, Lord Jesus. And love for Christ It provides motivation to obedience. And law provides a direction for our love. Let's pray.